If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. And having just heard that great Christmas song, we're going to read a great Christmas text in Matthew 121. And it's one of my favorites to consider this time of year. And no doubt it's one of your favorites as well. Matthew 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 25 by way of introduction this morning before we study God's Word together. I'll invite you to go ahead and look at that text with me. Matthew 1, and we'll start in verse 18. And there we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. My favorite part, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. We'll stop there. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I like it. When I hear those words, there's something in those words even that makes me feel good. I I like to read Matthew 1, and I like to read it on more of a trivial level. It makes me feel good because I think about Christmas time, and, and I think about... Other things I like, because there are other things I like at Christmas time, just like it's true for you, no doubt. You're, you're having unique, special times with your family. You're, you're eating food that you enjoy, and perhaps you only have it once a year. And all of these traditions come to mind, and, and we associate texts like this with things we enjoy. But on a more serious level, I really like this passage, because in it I'm reminded that Jesus came... And was born for a distinct purpose. I couldn't help myself. I had to interrupt my reading of it when we got to verse 21. I said, this is my favorite part. He he came to save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus, Savior. That's why. And, and And I love that part. And yet, when we keep reading beyond Matthew 1, we don't feel so good. In fact, the further we keep reading in any gospel account after a birth narrative, on one level, the worse we feel. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we love Him as our Lord, our King. We love Him as our great Savior. We we adore Christ. So on one level, the natural response is, after you read Matthew 1, in a certain sense, you feel worse and worse and worse the further you read. Perhaps this is why, on one level, we love Christmas so much. 
because we can just leave him as a baby and nothing bad happens. No doubt there are other reasons for loving Christmas. But outrageous things happen to this one we love and we call our Lord and we call our Savior. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 26, verses 47 to 56, and it's outrageous. It's outrageous because Jesus is opposed by the religious leaders like he's never been opposed before. He's unjustly opposed and captured by the governing authorities, opposed by them like he's never been opposed before. And to really drive the nail in the coffin, so to speak, he is betrayed by one of his very own, one of his very own beloved disciples, Judas. There's something in me that doesn't want to read further than Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 or 25. Perhaps what's even more outrageous is the fact that when we get to Matthew 26, Jesus is not only opposed by the government, he's not only, only opposed by the religious leaders, he's betrayed by Judas, his disciple. What's perhaps even more outrageous is the fact that Jesus does nothing to stop it. Or, he doesn't let anyone else do anything to stop it, even though they want to try to do things to stop it. And, and, and there's something about all of this that says, no! We love Jesus way too much to move beyond the birth narrative. It's too painful, it's too awful, it's too outrageous, it's too bothersome when we read in what comes after Matthew 1. Certainly Matthew 26. It may cause us to even wonder on a certain level, I think it's even helpful to do, do this even if it's momentarily, whatever happened to Matthew 121? Can't we just stay in Matthew 121? Whatever happened to Matthew 121? And what I would like to have you see today, nothing happened to Matthew 121 in a bad sense. As we move beyond Matthew 121, and it gets worse and worse and worse, even to the point where we are now in Matthew 26, and it is so bad. What we will see in the text itself is Matthew 121 is becoming reality. That Matthew 121 is the script, if you will, and Jesus is still following the script. He is going to be faithful to the plan that is going to lead to the salvation of His people and to His glory. And we should say, yes, we're so thankful for the birth narrative. We are so thankful for Christmas. And yet, even though it troubles us to move beyond and see all of the bad things that happen to our great Savior who we don't have anything bad to happen, we can rejoice and keep reading and saying, we're so glad that it happened because really it's just the unfolding of Matthew 121. And so as we look at this passage in chapter 26, I hope we will see that Jesus is in control. Sinners are culpable, means responsible for their actions. They're doing horrible things and we should be bothered by them. Jesus is in charge following the script of Matthew 121 and it's all on course for Jesus to save His people from their sins. And so therefore, on a whole nother level, we love what is happening to Jesus even 
after Christmas. Because he's in control, because he's fulfilling God's perfect design for him. And what this should cause us to do is to respond by saying, we love Jesus Christ more than ever. We are more in awe at Jesus Christ for sticking to the script and being in charge and being in control than ever before. That's the outcome. That's the point of the sermon because I think it's the point of the passage because I think it's the point of the Bible because it's the point of the entire gospel account. It's all about you saying Jesus Christ is great. He's amazing. And indeed, even amidst the bad to show how powerful He is, He is making sure, and I'll say it again because I like the illustration so much, that He follows the script. So the practical application today for the sermon is not 12 new ways you can be a more effective parent or you can be a better business manager at at work or to help you in any way, shape, or form in anything practical. There's nothing practical about this sermon on one level, right? This is all about seeing how great Jesus is and how seeing and seeing how faithful he was to his father's perfect plan and seeing how much he loved sinners. And there is nothing more practical than that. Us being enamored with in awe of the great king Jesus who in fact came to save his people from their sins, and amidst the tragedy, he is executing the perfect plan. I love Jesus. I love the account. I love what it's all about. I love the whole thing. And I can't wait for us to look at the actual account. There's no outline this morning. It would only get in the way. It's all straightforward and clear. But let me remind you where we were before we stopped and we, uh, before we begin again in verse 47. Leading into verse 47, or on the heels, uh, it's on the heels of this account where Jesus was praying. He's there in the garden. It is this prayer time of great agony and great distress. And what is he so distressed over? It's what we saw the last time we were together in Matthew. He is distressed over the fact that, that he knows what is coming. And uh, and he is dreading what is coming because it is the cup, as he calls it, the cup of God's undiluted wrath. He is going to experience the just condemnation of God that we deserve as sinners. He's doing it in our place. And he is troubled. He is in anguish. He is bothered. He is fretting. He is distressed. The disciples have shown themselves to not be there for him. They're not supportive of him. And then... Based upon John's account, even before he is done speaking to them, he can see the lanterns coming. I mean, the drama of it all is pretty intense. Jesus is still talking to his disciples, and here come the torches. And they're coming for him, and he knows they're coming for him. And that's where we pick up verse 47. If you look with me, you'll see. It says, while he was still speaking... Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And there's only one response to that from my perspective, and that is, that is outrageous! That is outrageous on all different kinds of levels! I mean, just meditate on it a little bit, and if we re-look at verse 47, you say, this is outrageous... 
Because Jesus, remember Jesus, he should be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is betrayed. Savior betrayed. This doesn't make any sense. This is absolutely outrageous. When you relook at it and meditate on it more, this is outrageous on a whole other level because Jesus, Savior, is betrayed. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus, Savior, is betrayed by Judas, who is, what does it say? One of the twelve? One of his comrades? One of his, one of his fellows? One of his disciples? A beloved one? It's outrageous on that level. We're not talking about someone in the crowd. We're not talking about a casual acquaintance. We're not talking about a Pharisee. We're not talking about anyone other than someone who he loved, who was a special friend, was blessed by his ministry. It's outrageous on that level. It's outrageous on another level because if you look at it again, we not only have the Savior is betrayed, he's betrayed by Judas who is a disciple, but you also have him being betrayed and they're coming with swords and clubs against the Savior who came here to be militant. No, who came here to save his people from their sins. And they come with clubs and swords. It's outrageous on a whole other level because who is there accompanying them with swords and with clubs, it says, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So now, of all people who should be greeting him with open arms, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior. The religious leaders are surely going to greet him with open arms. It's no surprise to us because we've been reading the Gospel account. They're the ones who are zealously opposing Him. It's outrageous on that level. It's outrageous on another level because not only is it Judas, one of the twelve, not only do they have clubs and swords, not only do we see that it's the chief priests and elders there, the religious leaders, but a large crowd. John's account would have us know that those are Roman soldiers. It's outrageous there too. It says a Roman cohort. If it's a Roman cohort, that would be 600 Romans. Some would even suggest that based upon all the Gospel accounts, it would have even been significantly larger than a Roman cohort. Irregardless, Matthew tells us there's a large crowd there surrounding Jesus. tells us it is outrageous. So what's happening to Jesus? Something bad is happening to Jesus. But please don't conclude that what is happening to Jesus is happening to Jesus because Jesus is at the wrong place at the wrong time. He's got bad luck. He's a victim of circumstance. Please don't conclude that. And we're going to see this explicitly in the text of Matthew momentarily. But before we do that, we even have some preliminary hints that this is not bad luck, wrong place at the wrong time. If you go to John chapter 18, let me show you a couple of preliminary hints. This is happening because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And this is part of the script. This is by divine design. This is intentional. So when we see these bad things happening to Jesus, yes, there are bad people doing them. Yes, they are accountable. But know this for certain. Jesus is, in fact, committed to the plan of saving his people from their sins. And so when we read accounts like this, we're troubled. We're mad at the bad guys, so to speak. Rightfully so. 
but it causes us to love Jesus all the more because by doing these things, He is showing that He loves us. It should come out loud and clear. Look with me, if you would, at John 18, verse 2. It wasn't hard to find Jesus. It tells us there. Now Judas also, who was betraying Him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with His disciples. Now, that isn't a direct text saying Jesus was doing this on purpose by divine design. It's, we're not there yet. We'll get there. But it's, it's, it's perhaps the first hint. It's the first flag saying, this is happening according to plan. Judas knew where Jesus would be. Judas had been there with Jesus before. Jesus already knew Judas was betraying him. Jesus is smart. Jesus would have therefore concluded if he didn't want to be found that he should go somewhere else. He goes to the very place he had gone before, knowing full well that he could be found there, certainly by Judas, who had been there with him who knows how many times. Jesus is following the script because he has a plan, a plan of redemption. If you drop down then to verse 4, you see something a little bit more explicit, showing Jesus is in control. So Jesus says in verse 4, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knows all of what's happening. And He steps forward and says, Who are you looking for? Knowing full well who they're looking for. He's not some kind of renegade. He is not someone who's trying to flee the law. He's not trying trying to flee His enemies. He's walking right into the trap. Why? Because He is in charge. Why? Because the very reason He came here, the very reason He was born, is so that He could save His people from their sins. He's going to Calvary, and He's going there on purpose. And everything is unfolding. Knowing that warms my heart and causes me to keep reading after Matthew one twenty-five. In fact, it makes me want to keep reading, and I hope it makes you want to keep reading too. He is in control. Well, let's keep moving in verse 48 of Matthew. Back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48, it says, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Oh man, he is just so smart, isn't he? Ha. Huh. Gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Verse 49, immediately Judas, I couldn't help but add to my notes here, Judas who was satanically indwelt, Luke 22, went to Jesus and said, Hail Rabbi! And kissed Him. He thinks he's got it figured out. They've got a plan. They've been so smart in putting the plan together. And what does he do? He goes up and he greets Jesus with respect, at least on the surface it looks like it. Hail, Rabbi! Hail, Teacher! And then it becomes affectionate, at least it looks like it. And he kisses him as if he would kiss a good friend, a respected fellow. I made up a word to describe this, but I think it was worthy of making up. The word is vomitous. That's what's happening here. It is vomitous. It's disgusting. Perhaps shedding light on just how vomitous it is is a citation that New Testament scholar Leon Morris offers. 
I've never heard this before, and usually when I've never heard anything before, I try to read broad enough, and then I conclude, you know what, maybe it's not true. Leon Morris is very well respected. You know, he's not inspired, but it caught my attention. One of the best commentaries on the Matthew account. Listen to what he says about the vomitous nature of this. He doesn't use that word, but if he were smarter, I'm sure he would. (laughs) Just to see how bad it is, listen to this. Cultural comment. In any group of teacher and disciples, the disciple was never permitted to greet his teacher first, since this implied equality. Perhaps that's what's going on. I'll keep reading. Judas' sign, therefore, was not only a final repudiation of his relationship with Jesus and a signal to the mob, but also a studied insult. Leon Morris and company may not be right in their cultural evaluation. He may very well be right. A public insult that may otherwise look like a compliment. We certainly know he doesn't have good motives. We certainly know he's not doing this for good. Verse 50, And Jesus said to him, Friend, perhaps an ironical twist, do what you've come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, I have to say, I'm a big fan of literal Bible translations. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of dynamic equivalents. Literally, it was, they laid hands on him. You know, well, that's a good translation. But I maybe have a little sympathy for dynamic equivalent folks at this point in time. They laid hands on him? What does that mean in our culture? Are they having like a healing service? I mean, what, which would be fine. They seized him, Right? That's a good translation of the idea. They grabbed him. They, they, weren't, they weren't showing him any kind of affirmation or affection. This is just, they're hostile toward him. They grabbed him. And then what we learn from Luke's account that we don't see in Matthew's account, somewhere in here, listen to this. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And leave it to Peter to not listen for an answer from Jesus. They're saying, should we we get him? Should we we try to defend you with a sword? And we know what Peter does. He doesn't listen in good Petrine fashion, right? Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we know it's Peter based upon John's account, reached and drew drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, it's Malchus, and cut off his ear. Unless you think somehow Peter the fisherman was taking night classes at the local community college in fencing so he could be so accurate as to cut off the guy's ear, I think you're wrong. <laughs> okay? He's a fisherman, right? And what does he do? Well, I am a fisherman, but I'm sophisticated, and I know a special pressure point that I learned in training, and if I cut off his ear, he'll be... He, he tries to cut the guy's head off, right? That's what he does. And, and for, for his benefit and sake, he, he has quick reflexes and, and ducked or moved his head out of the way or something. And here in the, in the middle of the night, Peter tries to kill the guy. He wants to defend Jesus. There's something in Peter that's much like us. We would prefer to not read past Matthew 125. But it's, it's because we forget 
And Peter wasn't fully aware and he had a hard time getting it into his mind. Even though Jesus kept saying it over and over and over again that he would be betrayed, then he would go and he'd be delivered over. He's going to defend Jesus here at all costs. Interestingly enough, in Luke's account, Jesus responds by saying, Stop! No more of this! And he touched his ear and healed him. And here we learn why. I don't know about you, but that would be cool to see though, right? Spielberg-esque. Done. Fixed. Probably to protect Peter. Well, we learn why Jesus tells him to stop in verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. I think he gives a general explanation next, but then he gives the real explanation, the the meaty explanation after that. But the general explanation is in verse 52, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. I think that's like a proverb. It's his initial response to Peter. Peter, don't you know that if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword? If your life is characterized by violence, there's a good probability that the violence is going to take you. I think that's what he's getting at. I don't think this is somehow the wonderful proof text for pacifism and Jesus is against all sorts of weapons and all of that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't say throw it away. As a matter of fact, in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, Jesus says, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat to buy one. Now, we could talk at a different time about what in the world Jesus was getting at by that, but Jesus certainly had given, given instructions to his disciples, you know what, you should have a sword. What's one of the most important things they would have? A coat. Well, you know what? If you don't have a sword, get rid of your coat to have a sword. It's really important you have a sword. Why exactly? We can talk about it at a different time. I think he's simply making a simple proverbial statement about violence and cautiousness regarding what they do. And certainly, we could take in principle and say, you don't try to defend Christ, I might even add, or promote Christ, by the sword, by violence. We could talk about history and the problems of that and so on and so forth. But quite frankly, I don't even think that's supposed to be the emphasis. Put it away, Peter. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he gives him the really meaty answer as to why. His rationale in verse 53. Or do you think... I love this. Now we're getting to the explicit sovereignty statements. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father... And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Peter, put away the Swiss army knife. Right? Because in comparison, that's what we're talking about. Your, your itchy bitsy little, little nothing knife. What, what did he say? 12 legions of angels and a legion of 6,000? Peter, I'm in control. I'm totally in control of the situation. And all I would have to do is say, God, get them. And it would be massive annihilation. And they would just step over the bodies. Peter, I don't need you. I don't need you. And your fisherman skills with a sword. If I needed, if he needed that, he wouldn't have picked Peter. Right? But what we love about this passage is it shows us that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. 
Things are going according to plan. This is what causes us to love Jesus. Peter, as horrific as this is, it's supposed to happen this way. Because I'm here to save my people from, my sin, from their sins. He makes it even more explicit in verse 54. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? I would encourage you to reread that for contemplation's sake. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Peter, I'm following the script. John's account tells us a little bit more in John 18, 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup. Remember we learned about that. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, I am doing what I am doing here to fulfill the perfect plan of my Father, which is, in fact, for your benefit. That I would experience the cup from my Father and experience His just wrath for sin upon myself because I'm doing this for you, Peter. I came to save you from your sins, Peter. And again, this is what encourages us as Christians to read past Matthew 1. It encourages us even to see that statement that He came to save His people from their sins and to see that that is just loaded. You know what? That is just loaded with things like the the sovereign control and plan and purpose of God. It is loaded with the love of God for sinners. His whole life is loaded with those things because he's, He's carrying out what He promised way back when in Matthew 1. It certainly makes the gospel accounts a lot more readable. In fact, it makes it more makes them more than readable, right? It makes us want to read. It even makes us want to read, as troubled as we might be by reading them, it makes us want to read the horrible stuff. And yes, I think it's natural and normal for us to be bothered by the horrible stuff because we love Jesus. And it shouldn't be that way. But we love to read that horrible stuff too because we see that it's happening according to plan because He's ultimately saving us from our sins. We love to read about it. Let's keep going in verse 55. At that time, John's account tells us he's now bound. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple public place, teaching a lawful and good thing, right? And you did not seize me. What you're doing here shows a lot about you. What you're doing here in a certain sense shows nothing about me. 
I'm a law-abiding citizen. Not only that, I am faithful religiously. I'm a godly individual who does my, lives my life in plain sight for all to see. Again, I'm committed to God. I'm committed even to my country, right? No, no, I'm not a lawbreaker. If the problem is with me, why didn't you arrest me when I was in plain sight? You've got to come by stealth at night. The problem isn't with me. The problem is with you. It's good for us to see this. It's good for us to see Jesus was sinless. What Jesus did was right. He wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't unfaithful or ungodly. They're doing this so no one would see. And to be facetious, to sort of set this up a little bit, let me reason this way. They're coming by stealth. They're coming at night. Oh, they are so smart. They are so crafty. They have such a well, uh, good, uh, devised plan. And they've got it all together. Oh, in fact, they were so keen and so mischievous and so smart that they infiltrated the inner circle of Jesus. They had a plant on the inside. His name is Judas. Oh, the religious leaders and their scheme. They're so crafty, so cunning. Let me just take out a needle and pop that balloon. Read verse 56. That's what they would have been thinking about themselves. Verse 56, but all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Makes me smile. Because they would have thought they were so smart with such a well-devised plan. We're going to get away with this. Oh, we got through to one of them. His name's Judas. He's the accountant. (laughs) There's power in that. He keeps the money. And Jesus is here saying, what's happening is here shows more about you than it does about me when it comes to wickedness. Oh, and by the way, what's happening here to me by you is happening... Because it's the unfolding of the Scriptures. I love it. I love it. It's marvelous that He does that. By the way, it's a marvelous insult to them because they would have said they're committed to the Scriptures. And Jesus is showing them, yeah, they're committed to the Scriptures all right on one level. You're committed to fulfilling the Scriptures by being the evil, wicked, nasty people who betrayed Jesus. Not exactly what you were looking for. This is a heavy-handed insult. It's marvelous on that level. It's marvelously encouraging to us because we see that He is on course. He's in control. You know, even for the here and now, if I could make an argument by way of observation, observation, from the greater to the lesser. You know, back then, sinful people who opposed God got away with some serious, serious things. In fact, the worst thing of all, they crucified Him eventually. But what we're seeing here is, it's all according to His perfect plan as He was seeking 
to save his people from their sins. He's in charge of even those things. Arguing from the greater to the lesser, when people today oppose Jesus and seek to defame him and seek to do all sorts of things against him, I've got to take great comfort in the fact that that ultimately God is in charge. They will be accountable. It is truly sinful. It is truly heinous. And I'm not supportive of it. It's no free ticket out. But I do take comfort in the fact that somehow, I don't even know exactly how, God is in charge and God is in control because if He were in control and in charge of that, the worst crime ever committed, He's in charge of lesser crimes too. And I don't mean in a morally defiling way. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. In control, worthy of our praise. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our life. Worthy of everything. Verse 56 ends with, Then all the disciples left Him and fled. And I don't know about you, but right now I'm thinking, Am I really going to end there? Merry Christmas. <laughs> Hope you're in the Spirit. Well, at least in Matthew's account, I really am going to end there. But let me encourage you with the fact that while all the disciples left him and fled, oh, and by the way, it's going to get worse with the disciples. Let me encourage you with the fact that not too much time is going to pass and we're going to see the disciples much clearer than I've been able to do today articulating and explaining how these horrific, horrendous, vomitous things happened to Jesus and yet they happened according to the perfect plan of Jesus so that he might bring salvation. Peter himself, who flees at this point in time, who is going to deny Jesus three times, it's going to get worse than this, is going to preach a sermon in Acts chapter 2 after he sees the whole thing and how it all ends. And what is he going to say there in Acts chapter 2? He's going to say, Jesus, who you crucified, talking to the Jews was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, is what he's going to say to him. And then he's going to go on to explain. that, That wouldn't be a good thing, but he goes on to explain why that is a good thing. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He's going to go on to say, this is good news. Because he didn't stay crucified, he rose again from the dead to bring new life. That is to say, if he were Matthew speaking, if Matthew were preaching that sermon, he could have very well said, after he said he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he would have said, in order to save his people from their sins. And that should be our perspective to be troubled beyond measure that such things were done to Jesus.
But to not be paralyzed by those things. Because they are part of the plan and purpose of Christ. They are part of the script of Him ensuring that He would move beyond Matthew 1 so that He would, in fact, save His people from their sins, ultimately through, not just through being betrayed, but through dying a substitutionary death. Satisfying God's just requirements. Taking the cup, as it says. Isn't this Jesus great? He is so magnificent. And what do we do? We look at what He's done, we contemplate what He has done, and we are in awe. It motivates us to want to give Him praise and thanksgiving. It motivates us to want to serve Him. It motivates us to want to tell other people about Him and boast in Him because He's great. He's a great Savior. And He is in charge and in control of everything. And so I can trust Him. I can trust Him for my eternal destiny. I can trust Him for my everything. I can trust Him. This is just a great example of that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Jesus who is our King, who is our Savior. We love Him so. Oh, what a horrible thing it would be for us to be consumed with anything other than Him. Speaking of His greatness, speaking of His power, speaking of His grace... And no doubt, Lord, He was doing what He did because He loved us. Cared for us. And we love Him so. May it show in the way we live our lives. May it show in the way we treat each other, not just as Christians, but the way we treat people who are not Christians. That we cling to a Savior who saves. We cling to a Savior who's in control. And oh, how great He is. In Jesus' name, amen.